Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. This morning, we have a wonderful guest joining us, Shelja Patel. She's a multiple award-winning poet, artist, and activist. She has premiered a one-woman show called Migratude in Nairobi and has toured that show globally. I had the pleasure of seeing her in action uh, about a week ago at the Bioneers Conference here in San Rafael, California, and she was amazing. We would love to welcome Shelja. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm delighted to be here. It's so good to have you here. Now, where are you today? Today I am in Berkeley, but I'm so glad that we managed to make the interview happen today because tomorrow I leave for Stockholm for the Stockholm International Poetry Festival. Oh, fantastic. Now, is this festival, is this, is this like a poetry slam? No, this is an international arts festival where they invite a small number of poets from around the world Mm -hmm. to share work and to discuss poetry and the power of poetry in the world. Oh, wonderful. Well, I hope at some point in the show, a little bit later, you'll be gracing us with a reading, perhaps, but... Maybe you that were would lucky. Be wonderful. So, Shasha, let's start at the beginning. You know, you have had a very interesting life, and I know our listeners um, would love to hear more about that. Where were you born? I was born and raised in Nairobi, Kenya. Mm-hmm. And you, um, your background, though, is not. Your heritage is not African, is that true? Yes, I am of South Asian descent. My grandparents migrated to East Africa around in the 1920s from Gujarat in India. So I'm third generation East African. Oh, wow. So growing up in Nairobi, um, as you know, I, I always wonder what it's like to grow up in a country. Um, where you look like the minority. It's an interesting experience. I grew up as a brown minority citizen of a black majority nation, and I also grew up as part of the post-independence generation in Kenya. So all those things shaped me very strongly. When people ask me, well, what do you identify as or what really shaped you? I say, well, there's all sorts of things, but one of the really important things, which isn't obvious at first glance, is that I grew up as the first generation in Kenya to go to integrated schools, post-independence, for example, and the first generation to actually experience what it was like to govern ourselves and to have a sense of our responsibility to build a nation. And so what was that like for you as a child? Were you aware of those challenges? Were you aware that this was um, something new? Definitely. I think that's partly responsible for the very strong sense of idealism I had from a very early age, this ideal of building a country, of creating a society that, that offered everybody opportunities. And from a very young age, I also had a a strong sense of justice. I was one of those children who was 
always outraged by something that appeared to be unfair. I couldn't just accept it as, well, that's the way the world is. I always wanted to do something about it. Well, you know, you strike me as someone who uh, is very grounded and who sees the world filled with possibility, and yet a lot of the work you do is um, really around a lot of tragedy. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, how do you keep yourself grounded and clear in this work? One of the lives I lived for a little while was as a yoga teacher. I'm actually a certified yoga teacher, and I lived in a monastic yoga community for a few years. And in yoga, in the physical practice, one of the key things we teach is that you need both strength and flexibility, and those two have to balance each other out. If you have strength without flexibility, you have rigidity and tension, and what that leads to is injury. And if you have flexibility without strength, then, again, it leads to injury and you don't have any stability. So balancing those two, having a clear moral vision and a a willingness to say, no, this is not right, and also having the flexibility to understand that situations are always incredibly complex. There are always multiple factors that influence a situation. And that as human beings, we don't come to any situation neutrally. We come with our own history, our own expectations, our everything that's imprinted us. Hmm. And entering those situations with that sense of complexity and a willingness to deal with complexity is very much a part of what I do. Hmm. When did you start writing poetry? I've been writing poetry all my life. As a child, before I could even write, I used to copy words out of books just for the love of the shape and the magic of this thing that was called writing. Interesting. So I've been a writer all my life, but it's only in the last five years that I've been a full-time artist. Oh, wow. So were you, did you do something, have another um, interest or career? Yes. Well, I grew up in Kenya where the idea of being a writer was ludicrous. It it really wasn't a viable career option. (laughs) So my parents said, oh, yes, it's great that you like to write poems. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But you can write as a hobby. You're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, something real. You're going Uh to have a proper profession. So I trained as a political economist. My degree was in politics and economics. And then I went into the corporate world in London for several years. And when I moved to America, I went through the monastic world. I did a a 180-degree turn and studied yoga and then went into the nonprofit world where I worked in nonprofit finance for a while. And all of that led me to where I am now, which is a a full-time working artist. Oh, fantastic. So... Tell us about you in the corporate world. What was life like? That was probably the hardest period of my life. I was in a very elitist firm, Arthur Anderson, which most of us remember as the firm that went down with Enron. Right. And um, I was in the city of London, which is the equivalent of Wall Street in the UK. Mm -hmm. In the intake group that I joined the firm with, there was an intake group of 40 college graduates. Of those 40 graduates, six were women, two were people of color, I think only three or four had not been to Oxford or Cambridge, which are the most elite colleges in the UK. 
and there was one non-Oxbridge woman of color, me. So it was very much a white boys club. It was an incredibly elitist environment, and it was relentlessly driven by all the worst values that we have come to associate with Wall Street, greed, profit over people, Mm -hmm. um, a relentless focus on making money and making money without a, you know, even if that meant circumventing ethics and good corporate governance. And so how long were you there? I was there for four years. And what made you leave? Um, I left because, thankfully, I got a visa. I got my green card to come to the U.S. I took the job with Andersons because when I graduated from college, I needed a work permit that would allow me to stay in the U.K. because this was the time when the political and economic situation in Kenya was about as as bad as it could get, and there was really little or no future for any anyone going back to Kenya, much less a minority. Right. And I needed to put my younger sister through college, and so I needed to be able to earn in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so I struggled in that world for four years, and after four years, when I was about, you know, I'd pretty much hit my wall and was thinking every yeah. day, I can't face this anymore, I got my green card to come to the U.S. My family had been sponsored by an aunt who lived here when I was a child. We had a military coup in Kenya in 1982, and after that, my aunt sponsored our family to come to the U.S., and it took almost 15 years for my papers to come through. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, you know, when people talk about immigration, they really don't realize how tortuous and rigorous and lengthy a process it is and how... Only the the smallest minority of people actually make it through all the filters. It's really true. So you got your green card. Yes. You came to the U.S. Is this where you got involved in the monastic world? Yes. I began in the U.S. by deciding to travel around the country and see as much of the U.S. as I could. And when I got to California, I was tired of living out of my backpack and I ended up doing a work-study program at a yoga retreat in the Sierra foothills in California, and I loved it. It was really an experience of coming into my body. I think my whole life had been so relentlessly focused on academic achievement and intellectual achievement that I was very much in my head, and it was the first time in my life I'd really immersed myself in a physical practice and a spiritual practice. Where was that? This was the Shivananda Yoga Farm in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Okay. Okay. All right. And you were there for how long? And I ended up training as a teacher in their teacher training program and staying with the organization for um, two and a half years. And then you were a full-time yoga instructor. Yes, I was a, a full-time yoga teacher and staff member with the organization okay. um, for that period. And then when I left, I joined the nonprofit world as a director of finance for a foundation. Well, and so that has a whole other culture to it, the mm-hmm. nonprofit world, um, and blending the financial element with the nonprofit must have been pretty interesting. Absolutely. And what I learned from that is I think we we do tend to have a lot of idealism about non-profit versus 
for-profit sure. endeavors. And what I learned from being in a spiritual organization and from also being in the nonprofit world is that those environments are just as subject to, to corruption, to abuses yeah. of power, to misappropriation of funds. And it's, it's really not so much about the, the structures as it is about the, the ethical codes and the morality of the people who mm. are within any structure. So what kind of people did you work with? In what environment are we talking about? In the about? nonprofit finance world? Um, I was with a Buddhist foundation for a while. Um, I also worked with a dot-com operation for a while. This was right at the, the tail end of the dot-com bubble. Mm. <laughs> so I think I, I also saw the worst excesses of the dot-com world. Well, and that was quite the moment in our financial history, and um, I dare say a predictor of what was to come if any of us were paying attention. Um, so we have more to talk about with Shelja Patel when we come right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back. This is Leading Conversations with Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking this morning with Shelja Patel. Shelja is a multiple award-winning poet, artist, and activist. Shelja, we've been listening and, and hearing you tell your story about um, how you, the journey you traveled to, to get to the, the beautiful place of being a full-time artist. And, and I dare say, I'm sure that there are many people who are very envious in this moment as they hear you say that you get to spend your time as a full-time artist. So tell us how you went from um, being in the nonprofit world in, in you know, a pretty, pretty powerful position to, in, to moving into your art full-time. Well, I was at the point where I had been on the slam poetry scene for about a year. I had competed at the National Slam Poetry Championships in the U.S., and I was beginning to be offered paid gigs and just mm. being asked to perform at various events. And I had actually got to the point where my day job was preventing me from accepting engagements to perform, uh -huh. engagements out of town or during the working week. And round about that point, my organization, the foundation I was with, had to retrench on 
its budget and it cut my job. I got laid off. And so it really seemed like the universe giving me a, a gigantic kick in the rear and saying, go see if you can make a living as a full-time artist. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some people would say that was um, quite courageous of you <laughs> to do something like that and not just go look for another job. Well, I also feel it was a tremendous gift. I think all of us have dreams of pursuing our greatest passion of doing what we really feel called to do. And often people have so many circumstances which make it very hard for them to do that. I was really lucky in that I'm young, healthy, I have no dependents, I'm not raising kids, I wasn't committed in structures where other people were depending on me. So I could actually take that level of risk because I was the only one bearing the risk. And so how many years now have you been doing this? I've been doing this full-time for five years. Five years. Well, and you haven't starved. That's a good thing. You're not a starving artist. (laughs) It is. (laughs) I'm all in favor of artists eating. Yeah, absolutely. So the poetry that you um, write and share with us is very deep. There There are so many layers in the message. And... I had the privilege of watching you perform um, just about a week ago, and I was so touched by not only the words, but the passion in the words and the way you, you became the words on that stage. And it was like there was no distance between the audience and you, and, and everyone was right with you. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, your your philosophy of poetry. I mean, you know, you, you must have some belief systems around poetry and its power. My job as a poet is to wake myself up to the material that I'm writing about, mm-hmm. which for me is always, I write about many different things, but it always comes back to, the complexities and the challenges of truth and justice and being fully alive on the planet. Mm. And once I've woken myself up, then my job as a poet and a performing artist is to wake my audience up, to create a space where they can move beyond the numbness, the mental defenses that we all put up every day against really seeing what's going on because it's too painful, it's too complex. We have to earn livings, get the kids to school, pay the bills. We just don't get on a daily basis to really see and experience what's going on in the world. Mm. And the space of poetry, for me, is where you can circumvent mental defenses, you can cut through the, the almost the overload of information that people have and go directly to their gut and their heart and give them an experience of feeling. And once people feel, which is what all great art does, it allows people to feel. And they have an experience that leaves them more connected to their humanity, that leaves them feeling more alive, that leaves them, I hope, larger and braver Mm -hmm. and bigger in the world. Mm. Has your poetry always been, um, has it always had like a political edge to it? Has it always been about these deep issues? 
I have written poems about nature. I've written poems about the rain falling. Like everybody on the planet, I've written love poems. <laughs> but what I like to say is that my ambition as a poet is to write love poems that are actually political essays. I think, I think you can't really write genuine love poetry, genuine nature poetry, genuine poetry about the human experience without taking in the totality of the situations we're living in. So I don't make a distinction. When I sit down to write, I don't say, I'm going to write a political poem. Right, right. I write because I'm moved, and mm. what moves me is all those different forces that impact on human life. Mm. So how is this, how are you received? How is this received in your home country? In Kenya, I've had a tremendous response to my work. Um, in 2006, I had the privilege of being able to go back to Kenya and share my work for the first time. And that was tremendously exciting for me because for over 20 years, we had single-party rule in Kenya and a political regime that was steadily more repressive and more oppressive and clamped down on freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And so it was when I was growing up, it was actually dangerous for poets, writers, journalists to tell the truth and certainly to share political material. Right. So in 2001, we had our first multi-party elections, and it was this tremendous space of hope and optimism and joy. And there was actually the political climate where, for the first time, pe people could do political work and share political art. So when I went back and did uh, my show, a version of my show, Migritude in Nairobi, the response was incredible. And there were just so many young Kenyans who were hungry for a medium in which to express themselves. And poetry and spoken word spoke to them very viscerally. Hmm. You, know, you mentioned Migritude. That's, the, that's your one-woman show that you have toured with around the world. And when I saw you, you were you performed um, a show, a, a portion of that show, that was addressing um, the problems with uh, against women in Afghanistan. Is there um, do you do you address issues with women in other parts of the world too? What Migritude does, what the first part of Migritude does, is tell the stories of women living in the boot print of empire, from Afghanistan to India to Kenya. The stories, the voices, the faces that we don't see on CNN, on NBC, on the evening news in the U.S. And so, yes, in Migritude 1, because Migritude is a, a four-part work that I'm still developing, mm. I, I look at the stories of women in India, in Kenya, in Afghanistan, in the Middle East. And talk to us about um, how you ready yourself to go on stage with us. Well, there are very practical elements of it. There is, first of all, what I'm going to wear, and there's hair, and there's makeup, and just, you know, those seem like 
they may seem like frivolous things, but making oh, no. sure my hair is <laughs> away from my face so it's not going to get in my face when I'm moving around, making sure I'm wearing colors that don't clash with the backdrop. Um, all those things make all the difference so that when I'm on stage, I can just forget everything and be totally in the presence of the work. And then there's physical warm-ups, voice warm-ups, um, thinking through the piece. What's amazing is I think like all athletes, all performers, all artists, everything you do to prepare, to train, to rehearse is really so that when you get into the moment, you are in the zone. You can let everything else fall away. You're not thinking. You're not trying to remember. You're not even trying to do what you've rehearsed. You're just an, an instrument that's ready for the work to come through. Well, and you certainly are present in your work. It is just so powerful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, do you have a poem you could read for us? Absolutely. I love to do this piece on radio especially because for me it, it opens up the reason that we need poetry. It's called Reasons to Do It. First, know that poetry will never stop your heart from breaking. Keep your world from shattering. Put food in your child's belly. Poems will not heal vaginas rent by rape. Filter the toxic metals out of water. Rebuild Iraq. Restore your Palestinian neighbor's birthright. But if you can reach for one word and lay it down on the page, reach for a second word and lay it beside the first, then sometimes, like a benediction, the third will be given to you. And in the face of all evidence to the contrary, you will believe there is a reason for your next breath, a radiance you cannot name, can barely glimpse, and you know better than to call it justice or mercy or love or anything other than a reason to listen for the next word. It's so rich. Thank you. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are you ready to grow your business? Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show with your coach, Rick Carrado. This entertaining talk radio program will bring you the tools to help increase your business. You'll learn sales success, time management, lead generation, business development, life balance, and much more. Rick Carrado is here to help you take your business to the next level. Listen for the Independent Business Owners Show, heard live every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Network. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're speaking with Shelja Patel. We just heard Shelja read just a beautiful piece that she has written. Shelja, I'm going to ask you to read it to us again. Okay, I would love to. This poem is called Reasons to Do It. First, know that poetry will never stop your heart from breaking. Keep your world from shattering. Put food in your child's belly. Poems will not heal vaginas rent by rape. Rebuild Iraq. Filter the toxic metals out of our water. Give your Palestinian neighbor back her birthright. But if you can reach for one word and lay it down on the page, reach for a second word and lay it beside the first, then sometimes, like a benediction, The third will be given to you. And in the face of all evidence to the contrary, you will believe there is a reason for your next breath. A radiance you cannot name can barely glimpse, and you know better than to call it justice or mercy or love or anything other than a reason to listen for the next word. And what do the women whom you are writing about think about this? I don't often get to talk directly, face-to-face, with some of the women I'm writing about. Mm -hmm. The piece that I wrote about that you heard me do at Bioneers, Eater of Death, was written because I read a newspaper report about one woman in Afghanistan, Bibi Sardar, whose entire family, her husband and her six children, were killed at breakfast by U.S. airstrikes on Kabul. So when I read this, I was just consumed with rage and grief that people in America who were mourning the victims of 9-11 could imagine each of the people killed in the Twin Towers as a human being, somebody with a family, somebody who had children waiting for them at home, somebody with a life but that the people who were being killed in Afghanistan were faceless, nameless. We couldn't really see them as human beings like us. So I wrote this poem to bring those faces, those names of those children, and say these are as human, as real, as alive as anybody that we can see on the street beside us or that we encounter in our daily lives. And the story of that poem was that I read it at a fundraiser to raise money for survivors of the bombing on Afghanistan for an Afghani women's organization. And somebody picked up a copy of the poem and sent it into KPFA Radio, which is a listener-supported radio in Northern California that has a huge loyal following. And it was read on a news show. And then a friend called me up and said, hey, guess what? Your poem was on KPFA last night. So I called up the host of the show, and she told me that they had 
when the poem reached them, it didn't have an author's name on it. Oh, wow. So they had invited an Afghani woman from Fremont in California, and Fremont has the largest Afghan, Afghani-American population in the U.S. Mm. It's the center of Afghani community. They invited her to come and read it on the air, and they put me in touch with this woman, which was wonderful. So I called her up, and I spoke to her, and I said, well, how do you feel about me writing a poem in the voice of an Afghani woman? Is it even appropriate, or am I just taking somebody else's story and someone else's voice that I have no right to express? And she said, well, let me put it this way. When I was reading the, the poem in the studio, I was crying, and my sister, who was sitting outside listening to me, was crying as well. And I have a daughter called Zainab. And Zainab is one of the names of the children that, that I used in the poem. So to me, what that says is that one of the marks of genuine political art and genuine art and activism is that if you are ethical, respectful, and genuinely take on seriously the responsibility of having a platform and allowing somebody else's voice to come through, mm. then it it speaks in ways you never imagined it could. You know, it makes me wonder if we will ever value art in the way we value economics, in the way we value military policy, in the way we you know, how much money we spend in all these other realms. Mm -hmm. And yet there's so much power in the arts. And it's as if we are missing, we are completely missing the point, mm -hmm. you know. Absolutely. And so, it's tragic because, you know, in the last 20 years, the state that I live in now, California, has built 20 new jails and one new university. And so we're literally funneling a generation of young people towards jail and right. towards the military instead right. of towards expressing their full humanity. Right. So you know, I know you have, with your background in, as, in politics and um, your studies in politics and being an economist, um, you have a pretty clear perspective on the confluence of those politics mm -hmm. and economy, mm -hmm. and and also how that then um, feeds the military complex. Um, talk to us a bit about your sense of how economic policies and military policies affect women of the world. Well, there are two levels to it. First, we really need to understand that U.S. military policy as it stands at the moment and NATO military policy right now is basically a strategy to open and secure markets for global corporations. It is no longer, if it ever was, about defending freedom or even about attacking or destroying perceived enemies of the U.S. It is all about opening markets and capturing resources, whether it's the oil of Iraq or the natural gas resources of the Sudan or Afghanistan as a territory for oil and gas pipelines. Um, that's what U.S. Military, military policy is aimed at. 
And therefore, when the U.S. attacks another country, it's not only visiting tremendous destruction on the women of that country. They are seeing their communities destroyed. They're living under bombardment. They're living with the consequences of industrial warfare, which last for generations. In Iraq, the estimation is that over half a million deaths have resulted post the U.S. attacks from cancers as a result of depleted uranium, as a result of all the other toxins that bombs deposit in a community. And for generations, we'll be seeing the kind of birth defects, the impact on women's bodies of those levels of warfare. And then there is also the economic impact, which is what happens when a country no longer owns its resources? What happens when the women of that country have no power to decide how their natural resources are going to be used for the good of themselves and their children and their families because those resources are owned by foreign corporations Mm -hmm. and guarded by foreign military. Mm -hmm. Well, and one could argue that even in this country, the U.S., um, you know, do women really have the voice Mm -hmm. to influence the natural resources and how they're used here? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other aspect, of course, of any heavily militarized society is that women bear the invisible cost of militarization. Mm-hmm. There is a huge invisible cost that isn't included in, in the military budget right. or that's not right. part of, of what's on paper. But women, first of all, are raising children who then go into the army, and so there's that tremendous cost of unmonetized labor, the labor of childbearing, child raising, Mm. to watch your child go off and die or return mentally and physically injured for life. And then there is the the impact of militarization on a society, which is much higher rates of domestic violence, much higher rates of sexual violence, Mm. higher rates of trauma, what it means when soldiers come back from war and how that completely destroys the fabric of societies. So there are all these huge invisible costs that we don't know about. Right. Have you ever had the opportunity to sit with a soldier of one of these wars and just have a conversation about these things? Absolutely. A good friend of mine is Jeff Paterson, who was the first Marine to refuse to serve in Iraq in Gulf War One, And I have talked to him about what it really means to be in the military. Um, I've worked with Amy Allison, who is another ex-U.S. service person and is now, um, I believe, a a council person in the Bay Area. And so I've I've had a chance to talk to a number of people who have served in the U.S. military Mm. and who have really seen close up the the truth of what happens when the U.S. soldiers go abroad. And a number of my poems actually deal with both the impact of the U.S. military abroad and the impact of militarization on women in the U.S. Mm. And what kind of response do you get to your poetry from them? I've had a, a very interesting mixed response when I talk about militarization in the U.S. From soldiers and from ex-soldiers, what I usually get is deep appreciation that somebody is telling the truth about what it's really like. Mm. 
I wrote a, a poem a couple of years ago called Letter to My Sisters in Love with Soldiers hmm. because I was seeing more and more young women, especially young women of color, be pressured into silence about their men, whether it was their brothers, their cousins, their fathers, or their boyfriends or partners serving in the military, and being told, if you want to support your man, you you, you know, you have to support them unconditionally, right, being yeah. in the military. Right. And you can't tell the truth about, you know, what your fears are, what your concerns are, what the impact is on you. So I wrote this poem that looked at issues like the much higher rates of domestic violence when military personnel returned from abroad, mm. the um, birth defects in children of Gulf War veterans, all those things, Gulf War syndrome and the impact that has on the partners of soldiers. And I've had really positive responses about that, especially from women in communities where a huge number of the men are serving, which is poor communities, working class communities, communities of color. You know, a I I want to send you to Washington D.C. <laughs> you know? Thank I, you. I want you to go and sit before Congress you know? and, and in a session to read your beautiful words and see if they can give it. You know, I mean, how? I mean, you you have a background in in understanding politics and the economy and. You understand the the workings of and the complexities of the world in that way, mm-hmm. and you know from your perspective, can an organization like Congress actually get to the point where they can make choices like you're talking about? There's so many layers. There's so much complexity in this, and there's so much at stake. Right. And we absolutely can have a government that genuinely represents the people as soon as we get the money out of the political system. Mm. The American electoral system right now is a corporate duopoly, and anybody who runs for office is accountable first to their funders. And we all know that you cannot run for office in the U.S. without huge amounts of money Mm. because it's a, a corporate game. And there's a very simple response to that. There's a very simple tool to address that, which is electoral reform, publicly funded elections. You need to get all the private funding, all the the lobbyist funds out of elections so that every candidate has an equal amount of money, the same budget provided by the state, funded from tax funds, and so they are competing on their issues and on their capacity to genuinely represent the people not to represent the interests of corporations and do backroom deals. Mm. And we've seen that that is actually achievable on a local level. Maine and Arizona have publicly funded elections, and we've seen a huge difference in who gets elected and the diversity of representation, Mm. and also in the kind of issues and bills that can get passed once you don't have corporations driving the votes of legislators. Right. You called it a corporate duopoly? Yes. I've never heard that word. (laughs) Instead of a monopoly, there you go. Basically representing corporate interests. Yeah, yeah, wow. That's pretty interesting. Well, you know, and and so our corporate structures are certainly challenged these days. I mean, you know, what's your perspective on what's happening 
in with finance, with the economy. Um, it, it's as if the structure is incredibly fragile. Um, do you see it actually being ready to crumble? Well, we've seen that that it has crumbled, that every myth that we were fed about the free market, and I say free in inverted commas because yeah. um, the U.S. economy has never been about free markets. It's about been about subsidies and protectionism and special terms for favored corporations. Mm-hmm. But we've seen the, the myth, what, what economists call the efficient market hypothesis, the belief that if you just create a market and let buyers and sellers figure out how to deal with each other, everything will work out, and that every human problem can be solved through the market. We've seen all that disappear into smoke. We've seen that it doesn't work, that it is a myth. But what we've also seen is that legislators are not accountable to the people, and so they've they've poured more money into these completely collapsed structures We've had over $900 billion poured into failed banks, failed organizations, failed institutions. And that proves to us more effectively than anything else that the U.S. is not a democracy, that the voices of the people have no bearing on how their taxes are spent. Mm. We have more to talk about with Shelja Patel when we come right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network every company will rise or fall based on marketing strategy in today's business world companies are realizing a significantly reduced marketing budget some may find themselves starving for new business with the internet continuing to grow by leaps and bounds companies may find that the opportunity proves to be overwhelming tune into the business net marketing hour with greg gaskell and jason Kepi for a straight-up guide to navigating the world of online marketing tune in thursdays at 10 a.m pacific 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america business channel From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back 
today with Shelja Patel. Shelja, you have been um, gracing us with your beautiful words and also your thoughtfulness around things like the economy and what we do in times of war and how military policies affect much more than simply um, wartime issues. You know, I am wondering, um, tell us a bit about who you are today compared to who you were as a child growing up in Kenya. What is the difference between those two beings and what do you carry with you today that you had then? Wow, that's a, a wonderful question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question and in that way. And what comes to mind as I listened to you phrase it was that I still have within me the seeds of everything I carried as a child, the sense of moral outrage, the deep responses to beauty, to pain, to the wonder and the heartbreak of the world. And what I carry as a woman now is the tools and the language to express all that was inside me as a child, everything that I felt. And I have, as I have grown and as I have traveled and through all the education and training and opportunities I've received, I've found ways to bring language to all those experiences and to express them and to put them out in the world and to act on them in ways that create energy and change in the world. Mm. And that would be perhaps my, my hope and my prayer for every young girl in the world, for every child in the world, because I think children know everything they need to know and they have everything they need to have. They just need the the right incubators and the right resources to bring all that to blossom. And what can we do for our children today, no matter where they are in the world, to support that? What, What can we do? The first thing we need to do is stop industrial warfare. And the nuclear industry, ban the arms industry, stop bombs dropping anywhere in the world. Once we do that, we can begin building the kind of world we need for our children. Well said. So you said earlier that you um, have a poem that you'd be willing to read to us. And this is a bit longer, right? This is a three-minute poem. Yes. I would love to give you the time to do that. Tell us what it's about. This poem is what I mentioned earlier. It's called Letter to My Sisters in Love with Soldiers. Mm. And it's dedicated to my friend Jeff Patterson, who was the first U.S. Marine to refuse to serve in the Gulf, Mm. and to other brave members of the military like Stephen Funk, Aimee Allison, Camilo Mejia, Erin Watada, hundreds of members of the U.S. military who have refused to pursue U.S. military action once they've seen the devastating cost of it. So this is Letter to My Sisters in Love with Soldiers. I beg you not to close your eyes. Do not turn from the faces of women raped, tortured, beaten, murdered by U.S. soldiers from Manila to Mombasa, from Baghdad to Bangkok. Do not tell yourself, your man is different, somehow mysteriously absent 
when they bomb civilian cities, plough living armies into highways of death. Do not buy the deception that he has no other options. Post on your mirror and his websites and phone numbers of veterans for peace, conscientious objectors, books not bars, refuse and resist, not in our name, every army battling for freedom and justice right here. Spit out the myth that you are guardian, safe deposit box for his humanity. Exercise your own humanity. Remember Audre Lorde, this eye is not for weeping, though tears are on my face. It must record everything. Tell him you would not touch a man who shrapneled your sister, bombed the clinic that treats your mother's diabetes, sliced open the water mains to your neighborhood. He cannot do these things across the world. Return and reach for you with shaking hands. Tell him you know about R&R for troops. Underage girls, barely grown women, shipped in like crates of chilled Budweiser's. Tell him you know he will go out on Saturday nights in Freetown, Seoul, Bogota, with, extract, with exact instructions on how to buy a little brown or yellow machine and what she will take, everything. How in church on Sunday he will hear that families, girlfriends back home cannot understand the pressures he's under to defend and protect, so it's best not to tell how he will come to believe it. Make his eyes meet yours. Tell him you have not spent years learning to love your body, only to open it to hidden minefields of dioxins, alpha particles, untested vaccines, waiting to explode a patriotic rainbow of tumors, malformations into the organs, bones, and blood of your unborn children. Memorize the names of all 253 byproducts of depleted uranium, their radioactive half-lives, the cancers attributed to them. Imprint two words on your brain. Fort Bragg. Four women killed by soldier husbands in two weeks. Familiarize yourselves with figures on violent assault of military wives. Triple the civilian rate. Know that calls to violence hotlines spike just before deployment, right after men return. Tell him you love him. And love is not unconditional support for choices made from fear, boredom, loneliness, weakness, ignorance. Choices made from too many years of digesting the label worthless, stamped on him by a state that tapes a rifle to his right hand with dollar bills while it rips the scalpel, paintbrush, trombone from his left. Decisions born of nightly terror that he will live and die unseen. Tell him you see him. Remind yourself that the days women were adjured to be the heart for their men who had bigger work to do out in the world are over. Two hundred years over. You need all of your heart, and he needs all of his. Your hearts have work to do. Shalisha <sighs> Patel, that was beautiful. Thank you. I know people will want to know more about you and where they can reach you. How can they do that? They can reach me through my website, which is shalja.com, S-H-A-I-L-J-A.com. That has lots of resources, audio, video, writing. If they click on Contact Shalja, they can join my monthly mailing list where they'll get a monthly update on what I'm doing. They can also see where I'm performing, and they can read my blog, 
I'm also on Facebook and Twitter as Shelja Patel. You are performing and you have engagements coming up? Absolutely. This weekend I'll be at the Stockholm International Poetry Festival. And next week on the 7th of November I'll do an evening of work in Berlin. All the details are on my website at shelja.com. Next spring, at the end of February, I will perform at the State of the World Forum in D.C., so I hope I'll see some of your listeners there. Well, I am sure, Shaja, that you will rock the house, and we're going to have to have you back again. It's been an honor to have you here, Shaja Patel, and I, I wish you well. Thank you. And remember, everyone, to think big, because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G dot com. See you next week. I